Welcome back to the podcast, Harrison. A little chilly up there in Fairbanks. Last time we talked, you said that it had been too cold. I think it was around zero, maybe uh, teens or something like that. But now it's been legit cold lately. Yeah, we've had a cold snap for the past uh, two and a half, three weeks, pretty much almost since the first week of or end of January. Really, it's it's been really terrible. Right now, it's a nice eighteen below, but we've had two and a half, almost three weeks of solid um, 35 to 45 below. Even we've, we've been seeing a couple, I think I've seen it three times so far in the past few weeks that it's been 50 below. And that's not super uncommon. It's just, you may or may not have that every year. Is that kind of how the winters go? Yeah. When I was a kid growing up here, um, you know, like I remember around Halloween, and even trick-or-treating that it would regularly be 20 below and just absolutely miserable. And, you know, it was very common to have there be long cold snaps of multiple weeks of 40 below, at least 30 below and down to 40 below for a couple weeks straight. But really the past, I don't know, five to eight years, we haven't really been seeing any big cold snaps. Our cold snap will maybe be like 30 below for two or three days or might hit 40 below for a day and then warm back up, but this has been a pretty good cold snap that yeah. re- re- reminds me of my childhood. <laughs> when I was up there in March a couple of years ago, it was negative 30 for I think the first day that I was there, and then the day that we hunted, it was negative 30. It started off negative 30, but then throughout the day it got warmer, and then by the time we got home, it was like negative six, so it warmed up throughout the day. But uh, yeah, it's that's brutal, man. It's been uh, last night. I was I was kind of worried. I didn't put the turn on the heat trace in our water pipes. But then I checked at like midnight. It was one of those things you wake up like, oh crap, man! I didn't put the heat tape on. It's been <laughs> it's been cold, and it was going to get clear. So anytime that it's clear here means that you come uh, winds coming out of the north. It's going to be colder, which is why it's clear. But yeah, it stayed it about 33 last night so i didn't have to run down and turn the the heat tape on yeah lucky you i mean there there are people here in fairbanks whose propane were freezing and propane turns to liquid at 46 below zero and so there there are tons of people around me my neighbors and stuff who would uh wake up one morning and all of a sudden they couldn't cook food anymore off their stovetop because it's run off propane are you hauling your water or is it uh, city water or? Um, it is city water, but we do haul it. Um, and by haul it, I, I mean, we essentially live in a dry cabin. Um, you know, that's not glamorous at all. So our, our water system are, we get five or six, five gallon buckets of water or five gallon uh, jugs of water. And then I put a hose to an RV pump in it. And uh, that's what puts water out my sink and then it just drains into a five gallon bucket so i mean we don't deal anything with water water freezing that kind of deal it's it's very rudimentary yeah that's freaking hardcore uh the place that you used to be at you would haul your water and so that was how big was that tank in the back of your truck i don't know if if people haven't listened to this podcast before i try to get some some of the authentic uh fairbanks nonsense or chores that you have to deal with there so you had a huge tank in the back of your truck and you go to this water dispensing station and Fairbanks does have running water for residents if you're on the uh, city water. 
But um, if you were outside of certain limits, it wasn't like you were really, really far out of town. But um, you have to go get your water. And then there was a holding tank underneath the house. And then you'd pump it in from there. Okay, explain that a little bit. Yeah, so since we just weren't on like flat ground in town, you know, they don't want to be running water pipes up and around hills and stuff and through woods and all kinds of crap. Um, so yeah, we just had a 1500 gallon holding tank, uh, that was buried underground. That was hard piped into our house, um, just through a pump. And I had a 175 gallon water tank in the bed of my truck that I would go to this fill station and fill it up and everything. And, you know, it only cost a few bucks to fill it up. And then luckily at the time that I was doing that for the majority of my time at that house, I lived or I mean, I worked really close so I could just get off work take like a two minute detour, grab some water, then go home and dump it. And it was just a gravity feed system out of the uh, tank in the bed of my truck down into the tank in the ground. But you just had to, you know, do it throughout the year. It costs like two and a half cents or 2.2 cents a gallon if you if you buy it and pump it yourself. But if you have the, the company come and do it for you, it's like nine cents. So, I mean, it's a quite drastic difference, you know, either cost you 30 bucks to fill it or you know 90 bucks to fill it essentially if you want to do it yourself or if you want to have the company do it for you Mm -hmm. it was just a pain in the winter because like you know it had a spigot spout at the end of it so you'd have to like in the winter time after it was done you'd have to lift it up and put a wood block under there to make all the water shift towards the back so it wouldn't freeze everything and then even then trying to do your best you'd still have to bring the hose back inside sometimes to thaw it out and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It just got to be a pain. Yeah. And then how's the warmth in the cabin now? How's the what? How's the warmth in uh, your cabin now? Oh, it's it's moderate. You know, if your feet are on the ground downstairs when it was 40 below, um, it's not going to be fun. So you're mostly sitting on the couch and stuff when you're down here or wearing slippers or whatever. House Crocs were, were big, were very valuable. Yeah. And it was 40 below here. How the kids take it? They go outside and play at all or what's the... Oh, they don't care. They don't <laughs> care. They get cooped up a little bit. When it's 40 below, they'll be out for like maybe two or three minutes. They will force themselves to go outside. I won't force them, but they want to go play. So they go outside and they're like, ah, no, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Got to put little booties on the dog just to go to the bathroom and everything. And Yeah. Because he's a baby. He's not a real dog. <laughs> When you're a kid, you just kind of respond to the environment that you have. So you complain about anything anyway, but when it comes down to it, you want to play. So yeah, it's just kind yeah. of is what it is. Yeah, that's that's like my childhood for trick-or-treating, you know, with friends and stuff at 20 Below. It's like, all right, we're here. Let's just run from house to house, get this over with as fast as possible, and then we'll go home. Yeah, remember the first time I we went to Skagway on a basketball trip. It was really cold there. It was down in the negative somewhere. Super bad uh, wind chill or a wind coming down the Lynn Canal. And uh, we were walking around. I think it was a, I think it was a senior, and uh, there was some frozen dog poop. And then of course us from from southern and southeast, like, well, what happens, man? This thing is really, really frozen. It's well below zero. Wind chill is negative 20 or 30 or whatever it was. And it's super dry. What's going to happen if 
you pick up this piece of dog poop? Is it going to smell at all? Is it going to melt in your hand just a little bit? Is it going to get in your hand? And so, of course, we said, hey, you know, one of our, our underclassmen, maybe a freshman, say, go go chuck that, see if it shatters. And he picked it up, and he smelled it. No, doesn't even smell. And then threw it on the ground, and it didn't shatter. It just kind of <laughs> hit, like hit like a rock. I was like, oh, it's an experience. And that's, you know, Skagway is not that far away. Skagway is, you know, not even like latitude of, of Anchorage, but, um, you know, you're still talking, uh, close to a record of snow in January. And I think we had just the one storm where we got maybe four or five inches. So, um, huh. it's just wild that this is kind of the top end of kind of that warmer air. And then it mixes with that cold air, the low and the high pressure. And so we get crazy storms with wind and rain, but it's kind of the divider. It seems like the divider is about Wrangell, Petersburg area here in southeast, where anything north of that, it's just all snow. And then south of that here, it's a little bit more warm air and uh, a little bit less snow. Or a lot less man, snow, actually. Man, the thought of having like a real winter and being still so isolated in a place like Petersburg sounds miserable. Yeah, versus Ketchikan where it's a bit more <laughs> mild or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of a trade-out because you know it'd be nice to have some of those winter sports. Yeah, to be able to take the skis out, to be able to snowshoe, to be able to you know do all that stuff would be a lot of fun, but we don't get the snow for it. So you know we get the rain and it's warmer, which is nice, but you know sometimes it wouldn't be bad to be able to have some access to snow or get a little bit to be able to play around in. So it's just the same rainy crap that we get all year. At least Petersburg and Wrangell have Alaska Airlines, too. So if you want to get out, you can get out. And that's the nice thing about here in Ketchikan, too, is um, you can be – we made it down to Tucson, and uh, it was like a whole day because we had a long layover in Seattle. But you could go down to Seattle on the evening flight that leaves at 5.30, 5.20, something like that, and then you're down in – if you would ever want to go to Seattle – but you could spend the weekend in Seattle just to kind of get out if you wanted to go shopping or go to Home Depot or Costco or something like that. You can be on the jet. You're down there. No sweat. There's hardly a, a drive to it. So some of those places you have to drive a long way, even Wasilla Palmer. If you want to get out of the state, you got to drive an hour, hour and a half to get to Anchorage, depending on traffic, park, and then fly. You know, it's pretty easy to get out of here. And same thing with Wrangell Petersburg. So you can you can fly out and... How long is a flight from Ketchikan to Seattle? Uh, hour and a half, hour 45. Holy smokes, man. Yeah. But trade-offs. Tons of tons of rain. Pretty miserable. No road system. Yeah, you got to fly up to Fairbanks and go <laughs> yeah. shoot stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, uh, let's on that note, um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the winter caribou. When I went up there, I think that was three years ago now, uh, there was a, a, do they call this a fall quota and then a winter quota for the caribou in the, the 40 mile herd? And that's the, it's technically in summer, but do they call it fall quota? Yeah, it, it, it would, I don't know if the fall one is considered a quota or not. I mean, I, I think they always do have a certain number of um, animals that they want harvested and then, you know, it changes every year and then they'll close it. And then I think, Sometimes they'll do winter surveys, aerial surveys in 
and see like, oh, we're seeing way more than, you know, we were anticipating, even though hunters claim they had taken this many caribou, well, we see X number of caribou and that's either too many or not enough. And so what they'll do is they'll then open up a, a winter quota if, if they want to harvest more. But it seems like it's been, they've been kind of on a rampage for the 40 mile caribou for the past five or six years where it's like every year it's just the tag numbers just keep going up and up and up. And, you know, there's always seems to be a winter hunt, but there is this year, but it was kind of late. Hmm. At least for the road accessible parts, because that whole zone is cut into four different areas. So like zones one is along the Steese Highway, which is super accessible to people around Fairbanks. Zone four, which is um, over by the Taylor Highway, down by Token um, Chicken. And then there's zones two and three, which are like these super isolated remote areas that sometimes people fly out to in um, the fall or they'll boat up a river really really far away to get up to that area and generally the harvest rates in zone two and three are very very small a mm -hmm. vast majority of the caribou are taken in zones one and four with a majority of them being taken in one usually yeah i talked to a biologist and each zone has its own quota and that the four and the three are rarely met just because of the lack of access it's very difficult to access those areas whereas up on the steese it's just a slaughter um early on it doesn't sound like a lot of fun i haven't done it so i can't really judge but from what people said it's not uh it's not a the iconic caribou hunting experience that a lot of people would like to have not in the fall i don't go there in the fall anymore that's just there's too many people and where you harvested your caribou was in zone one mm -hmm. but of course that was you know march <laughs> and yeah. there wasn't a lot of people out there so it, it was it was nice yeah, and the people that were out there, that guy was was super helpful. It was nice that uh, he didn't have that same frenetic, you know, well, I got to get mine. Um, he asked if we had a pot for to to make some coffee, so we gave that to him. Then he told us where the caribou were because we saw that he had a couple on his sled. We were about ready to go back to we were on our way back to Fairbanks, and um, we noticed that they had some some caribou. Stop by, roll down the window, hey. Uh, see you got some caribou and he said you got a, co a pot for uh, for for coffee he said uh sure and um gave it to him and he told us where the caribou were and um that was it and then he waited which was uh which is pretty cool too and i get that's a different sort of feel than you get from a lot of other hunts when it's competition whereas in that case the guy was more than happy to help out as long as we were provided him with something and then they stuck around because it's pretty dangerous you know if you do have people that are leaving it was not too long before sunset. So if it's super cold out there, you're a breakdown away from something bad happening. So the fact that he told us where they were at and then stuck around was, was, was pretty cool. And, uh, that's, that's a feeling you get with hunting that doesn't always, doesn't always happen everywhere. Oh, very, very rarely happens. Yeah. That, and you know, when it is cold out there like that in the nighttime, when it's dropping back down to the double digit belows whether it's 10 below or 30 below you're gonna die if you're not prepared but at 30 below you're just gonna die faster yeah it's pretty morbid but but true oh it's it, it is true like you know since i um have been trapping this year in a kind of a little bit more longer of an area to get to my trap line from where i unload my snow machine and everything and is uh 
you know, I'm starting to take a lot more precautions and take little emergency kits and whatnot and extra food, um, you know, unfreezable first aid, lots of hand warmers. I, I still need to build a, a crate that I always keep with me. That's going to have, you know, emergency sleeping bag, some kind of like bivouac type shelter type deal. Mm-hmm. So as far as that, uh, going back to that caribou hunt there, um, when I did it, it was an over the counter. When did they go to this? It, it, it's kind of like a draw thing for residents. Well, I, I think when they open up, so what happened was, is that they did have an original, um, opener for the winter in October. I think it was maybe October or November, but, and it was the RC tag. So it's registration or resident caribou or registration caribou tag. Um, and that's the same number every year. It's like RC eight, six, seven, I think. And it opens up and they said that they didn't want any animals harvested in zones one or four. So, you know, if you applied for the tag, you could only hunt zones two and three, which are the super gnarly remote ones. And so, you know, it just went by the wayside and, and I think they wanted like 300 caribou shot for the quotas for those two zones. And I think they maybe had gotten like 40, hmm. only 40 people had taken caribou and claimed it. So what they did is then, you know, with very, very short notice, the last week of January, they posted something that it was like an AC 999 tag. So it's like a super specific targeted hunt. And they, you know, did very little publishing on it to show that, you know, they wanted it to happen. And and because there was only 125 people or 125 tags that were going to be allocated for that to be for people to hunt in zones one and four. And they even said whenever they were putting out the draw that a majority of the caribou were on zone one at the time. But I think a lot of them are gone now. Um, but there was like 2,300 applicants for that hunt. So extremely low odds. Anyone who was an Alaska resident could apply. So you had people, you know, from like Craig, Alakakit, uh, Huslia, Nome, Juno, and everyone in between like applying for this tag that's like a pretty darn localized hunt. You know, that'd be like someone like me living in Fairbanks, seeing that there's like an emergency opener for deer tags where it's just like a, you know, say oh you know jeff could probably do that but you know what i want to do it and i'm just going to do it on my own and take that tag opportunity potentially away from you know a a local resident like that and it's it's like is it legal oh yeah that's fine because everyone's a resident you know who cares it's that type of deal but at the same time it's like ah that's a little lame that there are people who are applying that you know are more than likely if they were to draw it are never going to hunt it Mm -hmm. versus the people who like live around Fairbanks, North Pole, Salja area. It's like, oh, that's, you know, just a hour and a half, two hour drive. No problem. Yeah. We'll go that way and whack them and stack them or whatever. Yeah. That's an interesting quandary or, or issue. Sometimes it's, you start going down what would make the most sense. And it makes the most sense maybe to prioritize the locals in this case. But then if you start applying that across the board, that's exactly what we're seeing with some of those other caribou shutdowns where it's only if you live in that area, you're not um, at federal subsistence, then uh, then you can't hunt it. So it's like, oh, yeah. In this case, it would make a lot of sense if it was 
you know, just locals in this area. Because again, if you are from, if, if someone from Ketchikan, if I, if I were to draw it and I can't use it, that's another caribou that's taken, that's unable to be taken by someone who lives in Fairbanks. But again, like you're prioritizing one group of Alaskans over another. So it's, it's kind of one of those things that you point out, think, oh, that kind of sucks. But as far yeah. as this needs to change, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I'm not going to go that far because I know if we, if you go down that road every single time, then you end up just inviting more regulation. And it's just, it's an interesting thing to talk about. Maybe a little frustrating, but uh, we see how it works the other way when you prioritize one group over others. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm more belly aching more than I am anything. I'm not complaining that they need to do something, but it's, I'm mostly just pointing out the fact that it's like, Hey, you know, look at this. It's quite interesting to see that, you know, there are people who are applying who don't even live anywhere near there who, you know, it would cost them potentially hundreds, if not a thousand or more dollars to fly from where they are up here. You know, do they have access to a snow machine? Are they going to do it all on foot? Then their success rates are going to go down if they, you know, don't have some kind of mechanical advantage at their disposal. And, you know, there is even like one person who drew it who was an Alaska resident but does not live in Alaska. So that means mm. it's a military guy who lives on some base who knows where and applied for this tag. And it's like, oh, yeah, are you going to have the, are you going to be able to get your time off? to fly from wherever you are in the world up here, go shoot something and then bring it all the way back to wherever you are. It's highly unlikely, but mm -hmm. you know what? That opportunity was given to them and they were lucky with the draw and you know, that's that, but it's, you know, that one is particularly egregious more so than anything else of, for people actually living here. Yeah. If you, if you can make it work, cool. It's great, but it's, it is a winter hunt. It's not like, me putting in for the toke tag for sheep and then not get it or getting it and then not being able to hunt it. I don't know. I think Alaska is pretty good at allowing for belly aching and not necessarily trying to fix every problem in ways that end up creating other problems. We have a lot more control over these sort of things and uh, all these things that they try to do to fix things that ended up just being having unintended consequences. Up here, it's it's kind of up to us. I'm not going to be able to use it. I'm not going to put in for it because I'd be taking the tag from someone else. But yeah, I, I, I will say that, um, you know, that a lot of complaining doesn't get you very far, but unfortunately that's kind of, there's been a few small handfuls of people and even individuals that have gone to the state and proposed stuff based on their statements of them being frustrated that, they can no longer find moose anymore because there are too many hunters in their area. Uh, for example, in unit 13, which is a very huge, um, it, it's a pretty darn big zone with a lot of hunting opportunities, caribou, moose, bears, sheep, everything that there was one guy who was hunting off the Denali highway and had for many years. And he was used to hunting in one area. Well, you know, the Steven Ranella effect of everyone, getting into hunting late on, you know, onset adult hunters and everything coming in and, you know, maybe shooting some moose that he may have taken very easily years past or something. Well, he put a proposal in for the fishing game, you know, to close it. And by God, you know what they did? They closed that mm -hmm. hunt for everybody, not just him, but for everybody. And then shortly after that, the tags have just, you know, dwindled away, you know, based 
partially on that and partially on uh, population numbers, but then also they've taken away federal subsistence that wasn't available last year for anybody. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and then now you have everything going on in unit 25 and 26 because of localized people saying, well, we can't get our caribou out our front door anymore. Shut everything down. Yeah. You know, the non-residents flying around in airplanes are scaring the caribou away from their normal migrating patterns. Well, that's not true, but you know what? Sounds good enough. So they're going to close everything. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate thing about the, what it ends up hurting is like when you have those people who are high profile that come up, they cast such a huge wake and there's inevitably going to be people who have a lot of money who are able to do this. Since you have more shows, there's more exposure um, so now like, I don't know of anybody who's like hunting the hall road for like a show it's take the hall road up and then fly out somewhere else. And so your, your common person who just finds, finds out about a hunt, how can I get hunt caribou? All right, I'm going to fly to Fairbanks. I'm going to rent a U-Haul and that's going to be the cheapest way. And I'm just going to go. And then you're going to be driving around with a whole bunch of other people who read the same post or who did the whatever. And Meanwhile, everybody else that's doing their shows are flying out further and further and further. So, like, the common folk get pushed out even further. Again, that's total belly aching. But I did see a couple of people up on the hall road, and I was up there with Ryan in U-Hauls. And there was one guy who was just by himself, and he looked super lonely. He just looked, like, kind of <laughs> beaten down and sad. And there was this tiny bull that was just going back and forth uh, on the road. And so we pulled off to the side to just kind of watch it. And he got out of, of the of the U-Haul and just he was kind of chasing the thing. It was like playing tag with it because the thing wouldn't run off. It would just kind of like run a little bit and then and then scamper back. It was more that it was upset about the uh, – or was freaking out because of the mosquitoes and the bugs than anything. And the guy – then it finally ended up totally running off. And the guy just looked dejected and horrible. And he was just by himself. And we ended up seeing him at the – store up in dead horse and you know just kind of sad he was buying a whole bunch of sugary and caffeine laced stuff and (laughs) i think we said hi to him you know but it was just you you want to have this really awesome experience and you're picturing migrating caribou all over the place and you know getting it and filming it whatever and it just doesn't happen like that and saw another couple guys that were cruising around that um, they came down the same little spur that Ryan and I were uh, at classing across the river and Ryan and I had seen what looked like a couple of muskox, but, uh, we kept looking, kept looking, put the, uh, spotter on it and ended up being just being stumps. It's like, Oh, there's like four stumps. They, they fooled us. And these guys roll up and get out and start glassing, like glassing, like right next to us, but okay, whatever. And they glass. Oh, there's one, there's two. There's about six of them over there. And like, are you looking at what we saw as stumps? Like what? And then they just took off. Just like, look at these idiots that don't even know anything. It's just, ah. So it was kind of weird. And then we camped out at a spot. There were seven or eight other people who uh, who were camping, mostly from out of state. There was one guy who brought up a really nice canvas tent, had a whole bunch of firewood, had brought the family up. So... We talked to him a little bit. He's like, yeah, that's the key to driving all this way is to keep the family warm and happy. And I thought that is awesome. Like that's the, I think, I think he lived in Fairbanks or North Pole or something, but uh, had driven up there and brought the family and that was a cool experience. But, you know, now it's, it's the hall road 
and that's or fly out, you know, and if you can't afford fly out, it's kind of tough. But uh, with 13 shut down, with um, the 40 mile herd being a, a pretty radical uh, hunt in that uh, off the highway, it's it's hard to get to some of these spots. And I don't know, there's no like easy caribou tag and easy caribou experience. No, there's not. And, you know, with that whole unit 13 being down, that was a very big area for a lot of people down in the valley of the, you know, South Central people, Anchorage, Wasilla, Eagle River, Chugiak, all those places. That's where a lot of those people would go is unit 13 to hunt caribou. And with that gone, well, the next largest, most road accessible caribou hunt is the 40 mile hunt. And so you'd have all those people who were no longer able to hunt their normal stomping grounds, whether it be, um, low population numbers or, you know, tags being removed or just opportunities altogether being removed for the year. So you know what they're going to do? Well, they're going to come up to the next area. And what? where's the next stop? That's Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And that's the Steese Highway for the 40 mile. And so in the fall time, you can just think of the normal amount of hunters going on to specific trailheads because a lot of that area is locked down by um, BLM to where you just can't go wherever you want there's certain trails that are you know cut in for people to recreate on and you know they try and say as hard as possible please do not make new trails but people don't care people don't listen anyway yeah and so there there are way more people than normal in that whole area and so that's like for the fall i just i don't even mess with it anymore i don't don't go out there in the fall that's pain yeah that's um the reality of the of the situation, but yeah, that Nelchina herd just south of uh, the Alaska range would have been perfect, or I'm sure it was perfect for so many years, but now it's, now it's tough. You know, Southeast, you know, Prince of Wales really got um, a lot of attention for black bear and for deer. And then Kodiak got a ton of attention. It kind of became the new hip place. And there are people who would, on their shows, would say, Kodiak's like a nice starter Alaska blacktail. It's just this, rather than make it sound like it was epic, because you're going to Alaska still. I mean, you're, you're going to Alaska and you're shooting blacktail. But some of these people who'd been to so many of these these huge hunts were talking about Kodiak, blacktail, deer, like a, like a nice starter hunt, like you're a little, little arrogant, a little cocky there, right? That's the exact same. That's the the type of attitude that a lot of the locals don't like when you're just selling this hunt. Oh, I've done it a bunch of times. It's cool. It's a nice starter, you know. You know, for 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 you, you should you should go do it. Okay, and the attitude sucks. There is a particular social media influencer. I, I think his name is Gritty. The I I don't really follow him very much, but I've heard a lot of him. You know. Years ago, he was blowing up Arizona as like a, oh man, it's so easy to get here, get some mm. preference points. You can hunt really sweet elk spots or mule deer or whatever, and then a coos deer. And then all of a sudden, he starts blowing it up and he's got a big reach. And then all of a sudden, there's a ton of people all over the lower 48s that are, you know, starting to do that. And then all of a sudden, he goes on, he's like, oh, I, now it's, they're up in the preference points. It's too hard here. Mm-hmm. you know I, I need to find somewhere else and so he starts blowing up places in alaska and like mentioning very hyper specific areas that are either you know known to locals and not known known to many other people outside of alaska and he's doing the same thing now where, where he's like oh alaska is getting to be too tough for me to, to go do this very easily you know i used to be able to do it five six years ago it's like well then shut up about it yeah. keep it to yourself like i'm sorry that you use social media to pay your bills but 
you're ruining a resource to the people who live here. Not ruining it, but you're making it more difficult bringing in more people. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword because I think non-resident tags pay for almost, it's well over 50% of yeah. the state's budget when it comes to hunting because our, our tags and everything, our fees are so low to hunt everything in the state versus a non-resident tag could pay for multiple, multiple people doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's tough. And there are some people who come up and they film and it's great stuff and you, you really don't know where they're at. And that's, that's cool. I like that. And as an outdoor, I I make content, I write about stuff. I try to be as nonspecific as possible. If you just talk about the hall road in general, then, you know, that's one thing versus, you know, here's exactly where to go. But, um, yeah, that happened with, uh, I think Randy Newberg in Montana where he was talking about all these great opportunities. And if, if you're saying, Hey, if you're looking at getting in hunting or you want a different hunting experience, here's a great opportunity. If you're one of those first adopters, that's a great thing. That's one of the reasons why you watch that. So rather than this is something that I can do and you can't. And that was the old hunting shows used to be just this private land. And so you'd watch the show and it was, here's something I can't do because I can't afford it. They'd have the ad about whatever range or whatever outfitter they were using. And it was private land. Well, I don't have $15,000, so I'm not going to be able to do this. So I never really watched those shows very often because it was all private land. So when you have people start to do these public land things, it's so much more fun to watch. But there is that double-edged sword. You have so much more money that's being made because of people coming up here who are non-residents. But then... If they happen to be very specific, then things could get a little bit, a little bit hairy. Um, and that's, yeah. And especially that's, that's for like, bad. especially for anyone who kind of knows or is like pretty darn dedicated to hunting and they, you know, want to figure out certain states, well, you know, they can pay for a place like Hunting Fool or they can look up public information on people who drew for that year. And so you can, look up and see like oh I, I wonder who drew this okay well i'm gonna write this down and see like okay he drew this tag and i wonder if he's gonna make a video about it okay mm-hmm. he did so now i can see the video i can kind of discern where he is generally in that subunit or zone because of the video content that he did you know he's not hiding peaks or mountains or whatever and you know it can get pretty squirrely it's that's kind of like a been a big thing for a lot of people about sheep hunting is like keep your if you're videoing it and everything, it's like, yep, keep the angles down. So you're not really showing a bunch of area. You're not showing big peaks that are like very discernible because they're much higher than everywhere else, that kind of thing. And so it's, I I would imagine it'd be a really tricky situation for people who make money off of Mm -hmm. outdoor content like that. Yeah. I I think uh, even look at at like Tyler Friel, he talks about sheep hunting all the time, but he's so careful because he doesn't want to ruin his own sheep spots. And like when you listen to and, and you see the photos and everything, you're not going to recognize stuff. You're you're going to be able to enjoy a good podcast about it, but uh, you know it doesn't mean that you should never talk about where you go. It's just having some, you know, considering the people in that area who want to use it. I think that you're going to have a lot better relationship with the locals, if uh, and a lot, a lot less animosity. If when you show up, you kind of have that reverence and you're you know, meet some people and you're kind and you represent the, uh, the non-local hunter pretty well. 
I think there would be a lot less hunter conflicts. But yeah, I don't think anybody is going to be able to glean a whole bunch of stuff from from Tyler's podcast um, about where to go, and that's purposeful. And that's to be able to tell the stories. People are going to enjoy listening, enjoy the content, enjoy reading about it, but not be able to triangulate exactly where he's at. And that's totally it's, it's a delicate balance that that you got to figure out. You know, if you're going to be sharing content and that kind of stuff, is to not blow out your spot because you know presumably if you shoot sheep somewhere there's probably going to be more next year and mm-hmm. more the following year and so it's a place that you want to keep going back to and if you're not careful you can blow it out yeah i got a buddy in huna who <laughs> he spends his winters trying to figure out from all kinds of different markers and whatnot and he just spends a lot he's very meticulous and he has found a couple spots where where people have gone who we're not forthcoming with, uh, with details, but the amount of people who are going to be that disciplined or that, you know, whatever it is obsessed with it, uh, there's not a whole lot of people out there. So even just like simple hiding of it, you know, is just, you know, some people will use different footage. So they're flying out in a certain direction, but then they use old footage from a different float plane or whatever. And then it's, you know, it totally throws people off when I made that, that caribou, uh, film. I, I I started it with being out there rather than how we got there as just a way of, you know, people then guessing. And then people, a couple of people asked me just general questions. I said, I, you know, I, I'm not, uh, that's a little too specific. I don't want people to be able to figure it out. So I don't know. It's nice to be helpful. If people send direct messages, I might very vague, but you know, I don't want to, I don't want to blow stuff up you know, figure, uh, figure some stuff out for yourself. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a joy in that too, because I'd be lying if I had said that me and some of my friends have, if I were to say that we've never looked at videos and tried to figure out where someone had taken an animal from before, we, we've definitely been able to do that. And some of them are very easy to figure out as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, that takes, you're on like a conference bridge and you're like sharing your screen on Google earth or, you know, yeah. maps and, you're like, oh, what about this? Oh, yeah, that looks like that. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a fun aspect to that to be like, oh, cool. Now we know about another area, how to get into that specific location and go around this pocket instead of that and or whatever. And it's fun, but also, you know, I think that people try to hide a lot of stuff when it comes to sheep more than anything. And so even if there is another person out there who figures out where you've been or something, and they've either never hunted sheep before or gone sheep hunted, but never taken anything, you know, you almost necessarily don't need to be worried about them in the sense of, you know, oh, they're going to shoot my sheep, you know, because nothing is yours, but people get that air about it. But also they're not going to probably be able to, to grit it out and go to where you were or where you are and where you plan to go and, mm-hmm. you know, actually successfully take something. Caribou is a bit different because, whether it's a draw or over the counter, you know, there's a lot of them versus sheep in very specific areas. There's probably not a lot. Yeah. I think the expectation with sheep, people know that it's the chances are low just to be able to have an opportunity. Then when you get out there, the chances are low. And then if you happen to see someone else, like that's going to make things a little bit potentially chaotic, but you had one shot, not out from under you, but you were out there and you'd been looking at some, you had one shot 
and then you had to find a different one. That's just kind of part of it. And obviously there'd be some people who'd be probably pretty upset. I know that you were down, but, um, you know, it's, there's a different sense of entitlement and I, I can't imagine what it would be like to put forth that much effort and then have to find a different one. Yeah. That, that specific time, you know, it was like a guide who mm. knew that area very, very well and was able to get something for his client. And then, you know, we ran into a group of another three hunters that had walked into that drainage and then they were like, Oh, we didn't see anything. So we're turning around and we just walked a mile past where they were. And we saw like, four or five different bands and yeah. it's like okay we're gonna go yeah and then we didn't see another person the entire rest of the hunt so yeah that's the thing about I, I spent some time just just on on x looking around looking around looking around and inevitably someone has been there guides have been in there someone has walked in like there's nothing that is untouched or that is perfect and then sometimes you you're like, well, this would be great. And you just keep looking back further, further, further. And before you realize that you're 15, 20 miles back. And then how do you get there? And this little pass here, is it actually doable? Are you going to get cliffed out? And, you know, that's the stuff that, you know, you, you've talked about. And Tyler on his podcast talks about that a lot too. Like just the sheer amount of miles that it takes to, to do a sheep hunt. And if you happen to have a guide and that's what uh, most of the tags take, I think the success rate was, it was like 40% or something like that for a non-resident uh, with a guide or 40% or something like that with a guide. Um, and then not, it's much lower than that or no, maybe 40% of the, I don't know. I'm just throwing numbers out here, throwing out numbers with uh did you happen to know what the take is for sheep? So, so I think that in years past, I think harvest rates for, guides were very high 60 to 75 percent and then you know over the past few years it's dropped down to like 40 ish percent just because of you know sheep numbers are down everywhere across the state whether it's over the counter you know a lot of tags or very very little tags like down in 14c where it's like you know half a percent to draw those tags it's those places are down on sheep too so i mean it's they're down everywhere mm -hmm. residents are like less than 10% or maybe around 10% harvest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what or it was. Success rates, success rates rather not harvest success rates. Yeah. That, that was the, the key thing because yeah, but 45%, uh, according to this thing that I got here. Um, but that's with a guide. You're spending a lot of money. I can't remember what podcast it was that I was listening to. I think it may have been one of the older ones with, um, with Tyler and someone on there. Um, talking about at these shows where these guides are selling sheep hunts knowing full well that they're not going to be able to or they're going to go to this area and it's going to be a very very slim chance of getting a sheep but selling the hunt to these people anyway because they can say yeah the odds aren't great but uh we're going to do what we can and then selling more sheep hunts than they probably should and that seems kind of sleazy. Oh, absolutely. It does. You know, you got to look at it that like something for me that I, I never understood is like when it comes to commercial fishing and if you work on, you know, a U.S. based fishing vessel that trawls or something like that, it, knowing that like you make your living off of a renewable resource, but at the same time, you're 
ruining other species of animals or at least putting a dent in them for other people to not be able to do it. It's like, how could you make your money off of nature and then not care about it in a way that makes sense to anybody? There's an area that is off limits for halibut fishing because it's been deemed a halibut like nursery. But you're allowed, but the trawlers can fish it for pollock because it's pollock fishery, and then you get all this halibut bycatch. So it's just, whoa, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why the heck is this open for pollock, but not for halibut? And you allow people to fish for pollock knowing that halibut are going to be a bycatch. So if you're going to fish for halibut and at least use it and sell it, that's good. But then wasting it just seems like the biggest, most ridiculous slap in the face and stupidest regulation ever. Yeah, especially when there's no slap on the wrist or recourse or anything for those people to not be incentivized to just say, fuck it, I'm going to do whatever I want and catch it that way and have millions and millions of pounds of bycatch that are just thrown overboard and those fish are well dead and they're not going to come back. Yeah. Yeah, the fishing thing's a whole different, whole different ball game there. Um, all right, so back to, back to land here. Um, your prospects going forward, like, are you excited, hopeful for for the future? You know, if you live through the transition, you can look back and think, yeah, things were easier, things were this. I remember times before the proliferation of social media and and all these shows and whatnot. Um, do you think the future is it's optimistic? Are you excited? I know people talk about we're in a lull with the sheep up there, but the population will probably recover. And since the full curl, full curl requirements have been a good way of managing, um, sheep might look good in the future. Who knows about caribou? How do you feel about the future? I think it'll still be fine. You know, it will probably take years, especially for something like sheep where it's like, it takes eight years for a sheep that's born this year to be huntable. Potentially, you know, it, it'll take a long time for sheep numbers to come back into what they were in 2018, 2019. Cause my specific area where I've hunted several times now, you know, in 2018, we saw double digit rams and multiple that were legal and, you know, and everything. And so, if there's low recruitment rates for lambs and everything, it'll just take it's it'll just take time. Hopefully, you know, they'll have a, a few mild winters and things will bounce back and everything. But they were saying that, you know, like at a healthy population, there will be for sheep to continue their population, there needs to be about a forty to a hundred forty lambs for every hundred ewes to continue the course and, you know, stay populated. If there's 60 lambs to every 100 ewes, the population will grow. According to the aerial surveys that were done this year, in some places there were 12 lambs to every 100 ewes. Hmm. So it's just extremely low. And it's all that is going to take is time for the animals to not be stressed and overweathered to be able to recruit those lambs and have them live. And, you know, that doesn't account for the first couple of years where they might get predated from anything wolves golden eagles wolverines coyotes you know it'll just take time hopefully the weather will allow for that to happen but overall i think i'm optimistic 
you know, I, I'm not chomping at the bit for to go sheep hunting next year because that's just, you know, I, I go sheep hunting every other year, but it's, I'm excited for 2025 because I'm going to go again regardless. But it's just one of those things where it's just, it, if you don't go because all oh, numbers are down, then, you know, you could lose an opportunity to not go and not see those mountains and just be out there and have fun and walk your feet into, into bones and everything. And, but yeah, it'll just take time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's good to be optimistic. If you get pessimistic and you get angry about everything, then it's just, it's going to ruin your flavor of everything. And then when you actually do get out there, there might be that desperation. So you, you don't even enjoy the experience. And, you know, even with, even with uh, the pissing and moaning about shows and about attention and everything, that's not going to go away. It's just maybe drawing attention to people who are the content makers of the future to have your experience, but just maybe let's let's preserve these opportunities for other people, um, and then maybe not share every single thing, but. You know, that's, that's a personal ethic. You can't mandate that. So it's just, you know, kind of is what it is. Yeah. And if you try and start regulating, you know, having a reactionary rebuttal to that kind of a thing, it, it could backfire real easily because mm -hmm. there's, there is a proposal put forth to limit sheep harvest based on age that was put forth this year, which is like one of the most ridiculous things ever. It's like, okay, so you can no longer shoot, shoot a sheep based on age. So it's, you know, that can effectively shut off some areas of certain ranges just based on genetics where it's like, okay, well, that sheep will live to 13 and never become full curl. But you know what? That's dang near Boone and Crockett sheep, mm -hmm. like, like down in the Chugach, like some of those big governor tags that have been sold the past few years, they're barely full curl and they're like 12 years old and just monster rams. And it's the same thing with other ranges where it's like, okay, yeah, their genetics will never let them become full curl, mm -hmm. but they'll be legal for several years before they die of old age. Yeah. Yeah. That's <clears throat> the attitude we have to have going forward is one we're going to be working, working together and be logical and make sure that we represent what's going on well, because if we just start to get knee jerk reactions and knee jerk, you know, regulations then things are going to get worse and worse so in order to be optimistic we got to work together got to be uh i don't know just work together i guess that's that's what i was going to say yeah it's tough because you know they they closed down another sheep area um this year this past year like three or four days before it it opened for the season so i think they closed on like august 6th or 7th and it's like this particular area there's only like one to four rams taken on any given year four would be like a fantastic year for this hyper specific spot and it's it's like it's a not a big pocket of mountains they're far away and very isolated and you either have to like i have one of my coworkers. that's where he has hunted for the past 15 years and he's taken 10 plus sheep out of there but it's you know he has uh, a cabin on the river so he'll jet boat 40 miles up to his cabin and then take his airboat another 90 miles up river. Nice. And then he'll walk 40 miles. <laughs> yeah. And so shutting it down for him, you know, specifically is, is pretty silly, but 
you know, for someone who does it like that, where they have one spot that they know of and they go back to that area and, and they see, well, shoot, I only saw four sheep and they were all lambs and ewes and I saw one young ram, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, it, it doesn't necessarily put a sour taste in his mouth. It's, it's just a reality of the weather that's been hitting that population hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm still excited. I'm optimistic for the future. The realities are that there's populations that are down. We have closures of all these things, but um, I know you kind of have to have confidence going forward that things are going to work out. Populations will recover. And as long as we don't subdivide ourselves as hunters, then um, hopefully we can get some common sense regulations and we can preserve our opportunities going forward. Yeah, it's just taking it one year at a time and maybe focusing on another species of animals for a few years going forward before you you know really want to try and do something that's going to take the majority of your season away or you know like if if you want to plan like a two-week sheep hunt and then all of a sudden that dwindles down well there's two weeks of your hunting season gone and it's like okay what else can I focus on through the year and you know if you focus on one thing you may not be able to hunt something else for that year you know on a personal basis or something and so you gotta figure out what you want to target what the success rates are what that population is doing what the closures are regarding that area for that animal and everything and it it we're living in a tricky time yeah. for certain animals yeah and if i end up not doing it that's my fault it's not gritty's fault it's not ranello's fault it's not anybody else's fault i think that's a lot of the complaining that goes on or people who don't make anything happen and that's that's not that's stupid yeah, those are contributing I mean, factors, but that's just a, that's that's one of the curveballs. That's one of the things that you have to deal with. Like ultimately, if I don't sheep hunt, that's on me. That's not on anybody else. Yeah, and being out there is for me. That's what it's about more than anything else. Like I love eating wild game meat. My family loves eating it. You know, I don't care how much money I end up spending to get that animal. You know, I never figure what the price per pound is of meat that I bring back. I, I never take that into account. I just like being out there more than anything. Yeah. And it's, so if, if you don't get out there to do it, then it's like, that's on you. Yeah. What type of life are you living? Like it's uh it's something that you enjoy doing and you're living a, a great life. That's fulfilling. Like that's that in itself is priceless. And then of course all that other good cliche type stuff, but Oh yeah. Well, it's uh, about time for me to get ready for school. So, um, adventure survival lit, got two periods of it, man. We're going through all these great books and it's, it's fun, fun thing to teach. It makes me want to go sheep hunting, but I got to wait. Yeah. I, I like your adventure lit book list. It was really cool. Yeah. We'll have to Sh- do it. Shadows a- like Koi Cuck, Alaska's Wolfman, all that good stuff. Yeah. We got to have a separate podcast just about that. Talk about those. That'd be fun. Cool. All right, man. Thanks for being on. Appreciate it. And, uh, stay warm. Hey, thanks.